All right, well, um, let's get this show started. Uh, we should have a theme song. Oh, totally. And you should have somebody write it. There's so many like musical people here. That this, uh, this show needs a theme song. Uh, you're tuning in to the Comedy Store Podcast. As usual, I'm Rick Ingram, uh, star of the world. Let's not kid ourselves. With me today, good friend of mine, hilarious comedian, one of my first comedy store brothers, Mr. Aww. Steve Simone. What's up, Rick? Thank you for that. Uh, yeah. I love that term, comedy store brother, because it's true. This place is an orphanage for grownups. I it is. You become grown. Yeah. It's uh, probably one of the worst run orphanages of all time. Like, none of us ever got adopted. Uh, very Aww. few of us. But... Eventually, Hollywood's going to come looking for us because they're going to need someone to abuse. And well, that's... you know what? You remember like 10, 15 years ago, nobody here, every, everybody was either stinky or just not good yet. Right. <laughs> and now all the guys that weren't good yet are now stars and becoming stars and starting yeah. to work. There's a lot of people from our, our class that are finally working. Yeah. Uh, Myself not included, but me neither. But we're getting there. Yeah, we should be. Yeah, it's starting to happen. Um, Don't no worries. But yeah, Steve was one of the. He might have been the only person who was nice when uh, I first came here and started working. For the most part, everyone was. They were most people weren't tremendously mean, but yeah, it definitely wasn't like friendly people. You're you're one of the nicest guys in Hollywood. <laughs> I'm sure lots of people tell you that. Um, in recent years, nobody told me that. I guess I got nicer over the years. I don't know. I've started to get it. I start, it makes me feel good to help people. Right. So that's where then, we differ. Yeah, and there were so many douchebags when I came up here. People were so mean, and I I went through so much darkness and I hit my little breaking point here at the comedy store that when I started to piece my life back together, I realized that I wanted to, in my hope of hopes that nobody else's journey would be as difficult as mine. Ugh. So I uh, just try to make it easier. Like when I see like a goofy kid showing up here for the first time, right? I'm like, I'm going to be as nice as possible. See, my first thing is I got to ruin this kid before <laughs> he gets his hopes up. No, yeah, I'm the opposite of that. The yin and yang of, of comedy store treatment, really. That's why I think me and you could have great success, like in buddy kind of movies. And yeah. Like, like for real. And it would be the best to be able to work with you, like, and get paid. Yeah, that would be money in the bank. And I think comedically it could really work. Yeah, and I think part of the, the fun of that is that I'm horribly negative, but I'm not really as negative as I present myself. Correct. And, and I'm you're overwhelmingly the positive, but I'm not as positive <laughs> exactly. as I present myself. So uh, I think we, in some ways, bring out the opposite aspect of our uh, I once said, I don't character. know if you remember, but I was like, you're my verbal bodyguard. And I remember once telling you, I was like, Rick, you say everything <laughs> that I would love to tell this guy. But like I couldn't. Yeah. There's only one person here in recent memory that was just so overwhelmingly annoying. I was like, buddy, you, you got to take a walk. Yeah. And used to torture this person. I don't want to say their name because I feel bad for them. I don't know who it is. I've tortured so many people. So many. There was this, there was this guy named Dusty that used to work here years I ago. that kid. And he was obnoxiously annoying. And yeah. uh, he would just try really hard. And so he was up here a couple of weeks when I was a doorman 10 years ago or whatever. And uh, he just kept coming up here for a couple of weeks and just bothering everybody. Everyone's just like, God, that guy sucks. He, and he stopped coming around. I wish he'd, he'd leave again. So I was like, I feel like people are telling me the key is we need you to do this, Rick. We're mentioning it in your presence so that you understand it's your job you as bouncer? Lord of the Dark Side to send this guy away. <laughs> so I started calling him Teabag. And uh, I go, yeah, I heard everyone calls you calls you teabag. He's like, no one calls me that. I go, oh, a lot of the guys, they were saying. <laughs> you invented an awful nickname? Yeah. I'd say everyone kept telling me that when you were here, everyone called you teabag. I, maybe they didn't call it to your face. I, I'm sorry. I didn't know. Oh, my God. And he was like, what? Then he got all upset about it. So then he Did left. Did you just invent that technique, write that technique there? I don't or know. had you used that in the past? Uh, no, I think it was just, I was just trying to fuck with the guy and it just came out. It worked out well. He came back a couple nights later and immediately I was like, oh shit, everyone, it's teabag. And uh, Mark Hatchell was one of the other doormen at Whatever the time. What happened to Hatchell? 
Uh, I, I think he's moved on to other endeavors. Good for him. Um, so I always liked, I always, Hatchell, if you're listening, I love you, buddy. Hatchell's great. He's one of the funniest, just pure character dudes out there. Yeah, heart of gold, too. He's got a, a face that just the expressions he makes could could yeah. crush a room with. Absolutely, uh, should be working right now. Um, but Hatchell had witnessed me badgering this dusty kid. And he was totally in on it. You know, the comedy store kind of works. It's like people are like, oh, you back your brother. It's yeah. fraternity mentality, really. It's like, oh, you're an outsider? Well, you're not welcome here at the Delta house. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hatchell starts coming in. Oh, teabag. Oh, man, you've been coming around a lot, teabag. Like, no one calls me that. So then about 30 minutes oh, later, he walks by and I said something. Oh, do you guys know teabag? And he was like, can I talk to you in the parking lot, please? <laughs> I was like, sure. So we walk over in the parking lot and he's like, uh, he's like, listen, man, I, I hate that nickname and no one ever called me that. And I just wish that you would stop it. Please don't call me teabag anymore. And then from about 30 feet away, just yelling is Hatchell. Hey, teabag, what are you guys talking about over there? And then dude started, literally started crying. Oh, no. And uh, I was like, teabag, don't worry about it, man. <laughs> you even referenced it in his breakdown. Yeah. And he just goes, You're I don't this. One. And then he just stormed out of the parking lot. And I didn't see him again for like six years. Wow. And I saw him at an audition. He was like, I don't know if you remember me, uh, but I met you at the comedy show. I'm like, yeah, you're teabag. And he was no, like, no, you didn't. Like, yeah. Yeah. That, that was me. I'm like, yeah, man. Great seeing you. Always a pleasure to see a, an old comedy store face. And he just oh, kind of wandered away. Like, man, this guy's God. still a fucking prick, but bizarre place. That, I, I, I felt for years that that was my duty was just to fucking try and that let really people know. That really is the opposite of what I viewed my duty. It's weird. Like, I guess, you know, in families, they say people take on roles. Right. Like birth order. And there's all the psychology sure. behind that. And that there's certain people that keep everybody together. And there's caregivers. And there's people that see. It's really weird that I guess in a weird way, this is one giant dysfunctional family. And roles, nobody ever told you to do that, right? No. Not real. And nobody ever told me to be the nice guy. It just, it just happened. But it felt like, yeah, it felt like, like maybe that's what I should do. Right. And I was like, oh, nobody else is really doing this. Oh, so maybe it, I'll do it. Yeah, it, it, it is. Does that needed. make sense? It does. And like I said, I mean, when I got here, you were like one of the only people, if not the only person that I was just like, man, that dude is super nice. And that was it's a long really time cool. ago. Long time ago. Like, well, can I just tell you one of the things that made me feel so good that you had said once, uh, just, and it just came out like it's stream of conscious. And I was like, what? Really? Uh, you were passed years before I was. Yeah. I got and everybody early. knew how funny you were and we were proud. It was like, you know, cause you're funny and you're accepted and loved. So you were kind of like the guy here you are for, and me, you and she's her. We're going over to Terrell's for Thanksgiving and we were right. just talking on the car ride there. And you were like, yeah, man, if I ever get a sitcom, I would love you to play my brother Jimbo. Yeah. And then you told me how awesome Jimbo was. So that made me feel, I never told you this, but that made me feel so good on, let's count the levels. Number one, like the (laughs) funniest young guy that everybody's like, this kid's going to make it thinks I'm funny. So that's awesome. And then you were like, wanted to like work with me, which was even more, more better. And then to play your brother that you love so much, I was like, yeah. Oh my God. That's the best compliment anybody could ever give anybody. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and Jimbo's, you know, there, there's a lot of similarities between you guys, just in terms of you both love wrestling and I, you both I, make I me laugh. So, I was going to say, I was so happy when I finally got to meet Jimbo yeah. at your wedding. And I'm like, this kid's awesome. Yeah. Jimbo's great. He, uh, he pretty much ruined every song written in the nineties by singing his own absurd version of it my for, in my head. Or it's just thing. like, now I can't hear a song without being like, God, Jimbo's version's better. Yep, my big brother did the same. That's weird. That's a it's a must be an older brother thing. Like or they just funny know they, brother. I, this is what I think. My older brother and younger brother are funnier than me. I just I don't hate, know if that's possible. I just hate working. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the motivation for a lot of us. Was like, I, I would rather be suicidal from my comedy career not going well than having a decent career where I sit in a fucking cubicle. Yeah, I couldn't do it. It would just be brutal. Yeah, and I never saw enough light at the end of that tunnel where I'm like, oh, I could be financially independent. I was like, there's just enough money to be comfortable. Right. Like to pay your, not rich, not like. Yeah. But like. You could middle class it. Yeah. And I definitely was poor out here. But then 
you, I've been poor for so long. I don't care anymore. Yeah. And that's already starting to change yeah. after 15 years. Like I saw Sebastian last night and I used to me, he's the funniest person. He's the best. So, so funny. So funny. I was like, it's great. All this stuff's happening. And he goes, yeah. And it only took 20 years. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. From Sandy Shore's comedy class to full so, success is a just crushing comedian. Cru- yeah. Like as the guy, everybody in comedy knows he's the guy. Yeah. He's, he's one of the few comedians that I watch every time. He kills he just, every time. He just crushes he's clean it. Clean as a whistle. Yeah. And he, his whole thing, it's all just personality based. Yes. Like when I, when I first started trying to tell jokes and I gave up the uh, impressionist lifestyle that I was starting. I never knew that impressionist. I know you did that in Kansas city, but you didn't do that much here. Did you? I, I when I was an open micer here in the first couple Harry months, Carey, I remember yeah, that I did. Uh, I did Harry. I pretty much did anything. Will Ferrell did. That's great. Uh, and then I did a couple other random ones. Um, I was heavily influenced by SNL in general. Yeah. Well, um, you grew up with the good stuff. Yeah. I mean, I was, when I was 10, it was prime time. They had Sandler, Farley, Sandler, Farley, yeah. Phil Hartman, who's like my favorite ever. I think that was the best years at SNL. I agree. Yeah. I don't think if anyone wanted to argue that, uh, I would just bury him in a pre dug grave because and honestly, and I think Will Farrell was the last guy that did sketches people talked about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've watched it a couple times this year. My my wife is an entertainment writer. Okay. And so uh, part of what she does- I was is, about to say your wife's name, but then I didn't know if you wanted to put it out there. I just want to say, hi, Mrs. Ingrid. I'll put it like yeah, that. nice. Um, yeah, I don't know that she would want me to put it out yeah. there, but- See, did you uh, see my nervous yeah, face? Yeah, I was, where I was like, like oh. Uh, uh, yeah, like I felt like I was about to like throw a snowball in a car, and I'm like, Jones. <laughs> <laughs> like I knew the lady. That happened to me once as a kid. I was fully- cranked back ready to smash a car at the snowball. Hell yeah. And I saw who was driving and they gave me a look like horrified. Like, you know that John Candy look when <laughs> Steve Martin comes yeah. up to the cab? You're like, oh shit, I almost ruined that. Yep. Hey, how are you? Um, but she has to watch SNL and do a, a review of it for her work sometimes. And I've watched a couple episodes and it is painful. It's it's sad. I, I don't know. Like It's the, hit the wall. It has a couple funny moments here and there. And like uh, Leslie Jones... Is funny person. If Leslie, like every every comedic asset a person could have, she has it. Yeah, she's and great. the dues have been paid at thousand. I hope she becomes the biggest star in Hollywood. Take comedy out of the equation. Yeah, she's great. I'm, I'm Ghostbusters will be funny uh, because of her. Absolutely. Like when everybody took oh all female cast, I'm like wait until you see Leslie Jones. Yeah, I go. She'll crush it. She's fun, like yes, she's and I'm super so nice too. Proud of her. Like when she brings me up on stage, she'll she'll talk about how she saw me perform at the OR, and that's what made her decide she wanted to come perform at the Comedy Store. Wow! Because it's like she's like I didn't I never seen that you could just go up and just be mean to people. <laughs> <laughs> she was like I, I, I kind of want to do that. This place seems like it's you know very encouraging towards that. Um, which made me feel great. I was like, dude, that's awesome. I'm inspiring someone that I, I find very amusing. You know, yeah. very, she, she scares the hell out of me. I wouldn't want to fist fight her, but she is very funny. Do you know what I think? And this won't sound silly coming from me, but I think all great comics and Leslie is a great comic. I think what makes it work is their heart. And I think when Leslie gets really like aggressive with your comedy, it comes from such a vulnerable place yeah. and such an endearing place that that juxtaposition. It's amazing. Like, yeah. Like I always used to say, like I go back and watch eighties movies and I'm like, John Candy was the funniest person ever because he was so funny. But even at his funniest, he had this overwhelming well of compassion and he pathos yeah. in his eyes. And I feel that about Leslie. Like she could be like, huh, bitch, what? Bitch, but you can feel an extra level of emotion there. She's a star, and yeah, I hope she becomes like I'm looking forward to Ghostbusters simply because of her. I agree. And she and she was the only thing on SNL where I'd be like watching this skit, literally dumbfounded, mouth agape, just like they really think this is passable sketch comedy. And then her character would come out, and it would, she'd crush for the. 15 seconds that she was in the skit or whatever. And then it just goes straight back to like, what? And they, they have yeah. no idea how to finish a sketch anymore. 
There's oh. there's no conclusion ever. It's just like I, they do it for two and a half minutes, and then it's just like right, and then they give each other a zany oh, look, and then it just ter- it's kind not of good, man. You're like, oh, that was it. I, it's just pain. Like you know, when people go, it's painful to watch. It's painful for me to watch because so many of my happiest memories. Yeah, me too. Are SNL based memories. Yeah. My dad would wake us up when I was like six, seven years. Bellucci's on. Bellucci. <laughs> and he'd get us out of bed. He's eating donuts for breakfast with a, with a smoke, man. That guy's nuts. Yeah. Bellucci is nuts. Same thing with us. It was uh, my family, was, we watch SNL. We'd, they'd let us stay up late on Saturday to watch it. And then we'd watch Simpsons. Oh. That was like the two family activities we had every week. Was, comedy. Was comedy related. And, uh. I mean, my family's very much oriented that way. Your family's awesome. Um, Who else welcomes somebody into the family with the Tobo Origato Mist? And your mom Robot at your dance. wedding? Oh <laughs> my God. That's where I go. Oh, that's where he gets it from. Yep. I remember meeting your dad years ago that, when there was literally. People don't realize how dead comedy was and how dead this place was. Yeah. There was like four audience members one night and your dad was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. He came, uh, he was on a business trip a couple different times and literally every comic that went up for two hours would be like Rick's dad, Rick's dad's male companion, Bernie, who's like one of my dad's work associates. I've never met a bad guy named Bernie in the history of my life. (laughs) Yeah. Really nice dude. Um, But it was so bad here for so long that. For years, my dad's favorite comedian was Gaylord Dingler. He just thought that was the best. The machine ripped his leg off. Ripped his leg off. Thank you. And so my dad, how's Gaylord? "Ah, He's still crazy, I guess. Um, But then it's been nicer. Like my parents came in to Las Vegas last November when I was doing shows at the improv there. Oh, you were there that same week. Oh, yeah. Um, So I was having a miserable time because... I've, I'm not made for Vegas now that I can't party. I hate. I Vegas. don't gamble, and there's literally nothing for me to do there. So it would be. It was me sitting in my hotel room watching Forensic Files all day, yeah. and then going and doing a comedy show. And uh, oh, yeah, Vegas I, is so sad. I hung out with you and Darren, and then you lost your phone, and then I was like, Oh, uh, I'm screwed. Yeah, my phone got stolen in Vegas. Yeah, I was like, I'm screwed now. I'm all alone. And uh, my parents showed up that weekend, and it was great. We went hiking. We, like, drove out to Red Rocks. The real fun stuff. Yeah, it was cool. But they got to see me perform for the first time in years for an actual crowd. I could tell they were like, oh, he's, he's not a fucking He didn't waste lunatic. his life. Yeah. So that was nice. Dude, your mom, like, murdered at your wedding. Yeah. Her, like, I've never seen anything that legitimately objectively, empirically, classically funny delivered <laughs> at a wedding, like comedically sound. The timing was yeah. perfect. Yeah. I remember looking and seeing Ren is easy standing up in his chair, just losing it. Like what? it was something along the lines of my, my dad thanked uh, all the members of my mom's family for coming. And then my mom grabbed the mic and was like, I want to thank Jim's family for not coming. Yeah. Yeah. I expected ACDC pirates. <laughs> bon Scott. He's not dead. He comes out and just starts handing out shots to everybody. It was uh it was very amusing, but um so much fun. Yeah, it it was it was good times. And they were growing up, we were always the house where people could come over and we could watch rated R movies. That's and, my house, the fun house. Yeah, it was the fun house. So it was like snacks. Right. You didn't have to take your shoes off. Yeah. No, kids no. were allowed to be kids. Yep. And then I had so many brothers and sisters. Our house was constantly destroyed with all of our crap everywhere. So it wasn't like you need to clean up. Yeah. My house always, always going to be a disaster. disaster yeah. Yeah. But and that, to me, that's what a home is, though. I agree. And I don't think I've walked into many. The only home I've really been in so far out here is when Ren Azizi would have the kids come out in the summer and then Lucas. Right. If there's not like a bowls of cereal everywhere and little kids attacking you, shaking you down like gangsters. Sure. Like, what did you bring me? Yeah. Where's my gift? Where's my tribute? You're supposed to pay homage. Pay homage. Yeah. Art, artwork on the refrigerator. Somebody picking up dog poop, embarrassed. Get yeah. rid of it. <laughs> Classics. Yeah. The best. That's what families are. Um, now when, when did you show up at the comedy store? What, what, uh, what year are September we talking about? September of 2000. So right at 2000. Yeah. Um, and y- Prior to that, did you you came to the comedy store pretty much immediately when you got to LA? Yeah, I map quested uh, from AAA back when they, they would do these yeah. things called trip tickets. You get foldable old school old man maps. Nice. 
And mine went from my parents' house to 8433 Sunset. A comedy store. To the comedy wow. store. Wow. So you you knew this was your intention. Of yeah, like very you were much. Gonna so. Start performing here. Yeah. I remember um I had done some open mics and things like that. But comedy in the late nineties, comedy was dead. Yeah. Um so I lived in Philly and it would have been great if there was a comedy scene there, but there really wasn't. There was uh no open mics when I wanted to do them. And then like my last year in Philly, like 1999, um, a place called the Laugh House, which became like an urban, co- it was first it was David Brenner's Laugh House. Then it was just called the Laugh House. And uh, they would do open mics there. And it, I only went to like three of them, but I do remember Big J Okerson being there. Okay. I remember Kevin Hart being there. And I think it might've been Metzger. I remember there was a guy from Jersey that was really funny. But I only went to three of them. Right. Um, I'd done some open mics in Baltimore years before that, like five open mics. And then I would even take the train into New York and try to like figure out how to get on stage. Like I was like desperate for it because I graduated college, did a few open mics, and I was like, this is what I'm supposed to do. I right. knew it. I got bit by the bug. I was the same way. I was in college. I went and did open mics in Kansas City. And I mean, within six months, I was just like, what, why am I, why am I in college? This is what I'm going to do. Right. I graduated, had a job I hated, quit the job, but it was like, all right, I don't really know anybody in Baltimore. You can embarrass yourself. So I went up on stage and it was great. Yeah. I did 20 minutes my first time. Nice. It was crazy. My second time, the owner of the club was like, you're good. You want to promote your own show? I was like, yeah, we sold out a beer on my third show. He gave me three dollars. We charged a five dollar cover. I went back to my college, had like a hundred kids show up. Right. So he gave me like three hundred bucks, and then he was so happy that he gave me like a hundred dollar bonus or something. Which, when you're in college, is like yeah. I was like, I just made four hundred dollars just for and one for being telling chuckles. Yeah. And I'm like, I'll be famous by Christmas. Yep. And then they stopped doing open mics there, and I our house got shot at. So I moved home, worked in corporate America. So you were lit. You lived in Baltimore. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For like six months after graduation, after college. And then that was it. And then I was gone doing corporate America, just thinking about my five glorious times on stage. Just could have, could have been something. Yeah. And I was like, it's over. It's time to give up life. This is it. This is my job. And then I found out about some like comedy promoter that was promoting shows in like Delaware. Okay. So I did, went down there to check them out and I didn't perform, but I remember the first headliner at a bar, sh- bar show Wednesday night in Delaware was Jim Norton. Nice. And I was like, what? I'm never going to make it in comedy. If this guy's doing bar shows right in Delaware, I'm like, I'm, I'm giving up. And you're just now realizing that when you're New York based, you're just like, whatever, I'll travel somewhere for money. Yeah. I don't care. Right. I'm well, not doing you, anything else. You know else. what the turning point was? Uh, like two years after that, uh, Louis Anderson hosted a stand-up show live from the Santa Monica Pier or taped from the Santa Monica Pier. Okay. And Norton was one of the guys. I'm like, <gasps> I was like, I talked to a guy that did comedy on television. Yeah, that this I still hope. Yeah, this is this reminds me of when Barry Sobel tried to have sex with me, and then I ran into him at the comedy store, and he hey. he again made the attempt, not realizing. Oh, I didn't remember. Didn't remember me at all. Which, you know, if you're going to treat me like I got a pretty face, have the decency to remember it. Don't walk up to me. And, and I was still assuming that this dude was just fucking with me. Like, he didn't really want want me to spend the night with him. It's just like, hey, this will be funny if, if we act gay to this young guy. Oh, God. And then I'm like, hey, that's that dude who was with Jimmy Fallon and said weird gay things to me. And then... I think Caparilla came up to me. He's like, hey, be careful. That guy likes to try and have sex with young straight dudes. I'm like, he wasn't fucking with me. That dude really wanted it's to bone. All, it's all real. Yeah. Bruce then, Willis was a ghost. Maybe John Candy's wife's dead. <laughs> like you yeah. piece it all together. And then Every he, he, time you go <laughs> away. He came up to me and he was like, hey, are you new here? I'm like, yeah. And he was like, Man, we should hang out. You want to go to Home Depot with me? I'm just like, worst gay pickup line of all time. You said that to him? No, I just went, no. nope. Uh, we actually met in Lawrence a couple of years ago, and then he gave like the awkward like, oh, 
and then kind of wandered away like maybe I tried to have sex with that kid yeah. and it didn't turn out well. Um, but all right, so you you arrive at the comedy store. Yeah. Uh, did you actually get, was this the first place you sh- showed up in L.A.? Did you have a housing yeah. arrangement set up? What no, 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 no. What I did was completely crazy. What was the What was the plan? What'd you do? Okay. Um, it's almost too painful to talk about. It was so crazy. Um, I had come out here. My first time in LA was February of 2000. And I had such a glorious week where I thought it was all divine intervention that I, I, uh, went back to, uh, Philly and quit my job. And then the person that was supposed to move out here and be my roommate did not quit his job. So I was like, Oh my God, I'm running out of money. I have nothing. I won this comedy contest in Philly where I met Polly and right, Dean Galber. Right. So they were like, Dean. yeah, come to LA. So months later, I finally just had the balls where I was like, I remember my dad the night before I left. And this is true. Me and my dad used to talk, like figure, try to figure out life and stuff. Sure. Two crazy people hanging out. And uh, he looked at me because I was, you know, waiting for everything to be perfect. I don't have enough money. I don't know anybody out there. I don't have a job. Right. And my dad told me, he was like, you know, uh, have you ever heard the expression, don't burn your bridges? I'm like, yeah. He goes, you know what that means? I'm like, yeah. You know, and he was like, I explained what I thought it meant. He was like, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, sort of. But you know where that comes from? And I'm like, no, it's just logical sense that you wouldn't, you want to be able to get out. And he was like, well, actually it comes from uh, ancient Rome. And I don't even know if this is true, but this is what my it dad made told sense. me. Yeah. He said that comes from ancient Rome because the Romans had the baddest army on the planet. They conquered the world pretty much. And he goes, but there were situations where even the toughest guys knew they might not win. So when they went into battle, when they were in for the battle of like where they, they were outmanned or out where they thought it was going to be a tough fight, they would burn the bridges behind them. Because they knew they only had one option, win or die. They couldn't retreat. And he was like, look, kid, there's no right time in life for all the big decisions. He goes, it wasn't the right time to marry your mother. Dude, this is like an 80s movie. Yeah, he goes. The speech where you're like, oh, it's like, uh, what was that Jim Belushi movie where he he plays baseball or something? (laughs) They just, he, has the, he like gets to do his life over Mr. Yeah. Destiny. Mr. Himself. Destiny, that's what it was. <laughs> yeah, Kid, you got to give it a shot. Like, what? So I said, yeah, because I was like, I don't know if I should go to New York or L.A. And he was like, look, there's no right time for anything. Yeah. Because if, you wait, if you're waiting for it to be perfect, that's never going to come. He was like, I, I didn't have the money to marry your mother when I did. We didn't have the money for you kids when we had your kid. He was like, either you live your life or you don't. Right. He was like, next day I got in my car and just drove. Nice. I didn't know anybody. I had a uh, Dean's cell phone number written down on a piece of paper. Those were the days. And uh, I called like, and he was like, yeah, we're trying to get you a job at the store or something. That was it. And I'm like, oh, that was my fucking connection. I had a buddy from high school. I had about a thousand dollars when I got into town. Nice. No credit card, no job, no apartment, thousand bucks. I tried to stay at a hotel across from rock and roll. Ralph's it was $60. It, it smelled so bad. I got my money back. Nice. And then stayed at the best Western across the street, right across from the comedy store. Sure. And since it was prime summer vacation, it's it was like, like 150 yes. bucks yeah. with taxes. And I'm like, I have $700 for the, <laughs> to start my life. So my buddy, Matt graduated with my younger brother. I called him from Mel's diner the next morning and he gave me the fight club speech. He's like, well, why don't you just ask? I'm like, what? No, I was just calling to see how you were doing. <laughs> he was like, you're just going to see how I'm doing. He was like, I'd really. So I was like, all right, can I sleep on your couch? He was like, yeah, I get home from work at four. Just fucking nice. Gave me the, stayed on his couch for two weeks. Okay. Um, in those two weeks, I felt I got a job at a pizza place called the slice in Santa Monica. And my buddy oh, it's a stranger at the time. Who's now one of my dearest friends. My buddy Jules uh, found me an apartment for 600 bucks a month. So I used my 700 bucks to get in, borrowed another thousand dollars from my younger brother so I could give them like a security deposit and stuff. Right. And then started working in a pizza place right away. I didn't have time not to work. I didn't have time to figure out what my moves were. Came out in September, did like two open mics between September and Christmas. That's it. 
met Mike Black at the Comedy Underground in Santa Monica. So I was probably on stage like three or four times because I was too busy working. One of the jobs was production assistant on Paulie's movie, Paulie Shore's Dead. Okay. 12, 15 hour days for 50 bucks. Right. It was brutal. Yeah, it was the, the Shore family way back then. Dude, it was, but he, I remember four o'clock in the morning, Paulie gives me a call because I had just driven home as soon as I got home. And he was like, hey, bro, I saw how hard you were working today. And he was like, you're set up. I go, what? He goes, we're going we're gonna to set you up at the store. You're going to get a job answering phones so you can start doing open mics. Nice. Because then you, um, open mic list would go out on Saturday night. Okay. So they'd put the list at the front bar on Saturday. with the dumbest move ever because it's the only night where there was any business here in those days. Right. So they would have every homeless person come up and sign up for the open mic list. 40 names went on the list. 20 got picked. So as a broke comedian working in a pizza shop, I had to drive up here, couldn't find parking, would have to spend 10 or 20 bucks to put my car in a lot just so I could go put my name on a list. Yeah, it was the same thing. I showed up in 2000, end of 2002, and uh, then it was you had to sign up at Sunday. It was Sunday. Open mic was Sunday and Monday then, maybe even Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. But you had to show up one in the afternoon, 40 names on the list. You signed up, 20 got picked. And if you got picked, then you went up the following week. Yes. So it was yeah, like. Yeah, do it a week in advance. So you'd have to. So it was, I mean, and their plan, I think, was they wanted you to bring people or something. But n no one ever brought anyone. And it was no. just me and Danish and O'Neill and uh, Bill Prather and PJ oh, and a bunch yeah. of homeless people. Gaylord and Mickey and. I remember being shocked at how bad everybody was at comedy. Yeah, the the open micers in Kansas City were mostly young kids that were indefinitely better than. Yeah, like the only open mic experience I really had, I did a bringer show in New York, and I didn't know it was a bringer show. I did two. One at a place that was called the Boston Comedy Club, and the other one was at the Cellar. They were called pre-shows back then. Classic. Yeah, I didn't know what a bringer show was. Um, so there was that, and then the three open mics in Philly. But I look back at it, and there was like, oh, Kevin Hart was an open micer. Big Jay Okerson was an open micer. Right. And I remember those, and they were good. They were good then. Right. So when I got to L.A., I'm like, these people are atrocious. Yeah. And I hate to say it, at the time, a lot of the paid regulars were really bad, too. Yeah, yeah, uh, no question about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I was doing uh, spots in Kansas City, and it's like Chris Porter was one of the guys Smasher. coming up. I love that um, dude. So funny and so cool. Yeah, great guy. And he's a huge Royals fan. Enormous like he Royals He loves fan. the Royals. Yeah, he does. We, we've had a lot of good Royals conversations, but he, he was one of the – he started a, a year or two before me, so like he essentially – they'd let him like headline the open mic. Yeah, he was the We'd man. all get to do three or four minutes, and he would do like ten – and That's awesome. he had short hair and was uh, in no way the, the style that he has grasped wonderfully. Dude, uh, yeah, he kills it. Like, no wonder why he's friends with Chris Robinson. Yeah. He's, like, the best. Yeah, rock star comedian. Back then, though, he was just, you know, the nerdy guy. He had bits about looking like Nickelodeon's Doug and, uh, Hilarious. like, stuff that was crushing. But now when you look at him, I'm just like, I can't believe that's what he was talking about. Um but I came out here and it was it was pathetic. The mm -hmm. people I was doing open mics with. I did open mics here and my story is very similar and like I came out here with nothing. I came out for a one week over Christmas break, uh the Christmas after nine eleven. Wow. And uh, I was gonna come out here and then go to New York. And it was the week before Christmas. I came out here. It was like 85 degrees. Right? Beautiful. For New York. Yeah. I was like, yeah. no chance, New York. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought when it was February. And I was like, oh, it's this 80 it. degrees. Yeah. they both going to cost a shitload. I'm not going to be cold and poor. Yeah. And, uh, That's and exactly what I thought, too. And I also thought New York, for me, was too close. I was like, it'll be easy to quit. You'll be able to go home. and Yeah. And I would have quit. It's too uh, hard. I would have quit. Yeah. I, I, I was... Pretty convinced. I, I was. I was still only twenty when I came out here for wow. that week, and so I was. Uh, my my goal was to try and maybe do the Laugh Factory open mic because that was the only mm -hmm. comedy club I thought I'd be able to get in. 
Yeah. And uh, luckily, a friend of a friend of a, the guy whose couch I was sleeping on, uh, he introduced me to Freeze Love, and Freeze got me in. I got to perform in the belly room, even though wow. I was underage. And so then I was hooked. I'm like, this that's, that's so where cool. I'm going to go, and this is what I'm going to do. So you then got I'm, to perform in L.A. your first time here? Yeah, my first time. I got to do like seven minutes in the belly room, and I had like about four minutes of impressions. That's so I awesome, just had to though. stretch them out. I, I extended my impression of Willow for about a solid three minutes. I'm just trying to say anything I can think of that would sound funny as in the voice of the midget from my favorite Val Kilmer movie. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I was, I was set then and I was supposed to move out here with my girl. And then I walked in on her cheating on me and that's, it was like soul crushing, but then I'm just like, I got to get out of here. That's the rocket fuel that makes you go after your dreams though. Yeah. I would probably say the majority of people wind up in LA with a broken heart or they're fleeing something or. Which is smart because if you start out broken, then it's harder for this place to break you. Yeah. That's what I had thought. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It got much, much worse and dark. It kept going down. Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't believe it. And, but now I'm so, I'm grateful for all of it. It's been such a hell of a ride and I really, really feel like I learned what life was about here. Like I moved out here for all the wrong reasons. I wanted to, uh, I guess ultimately I didn't realize that I was just looking to feel loved and feel worthy. Sure. I think a lot of people that are seeking fame and worldly success, what they're really saying is just love me, bro. World. Love me world. Right. I mean, if you're seeking fame, that's what you're saying. It's like, it's not enough to be loved by my family and my friends. I want to be admired and loved by everyone. Yeah. And that's really sad. It's kind of sad, but really sad. And now I'm, I get it. Yeah. Life's just, it's not about any of that stuff. It still is for me. That's hysterical. I'll still demand it. It's not what you got. It's what you give. Um, yeah, now I had the same thing. I had to work. So immediately my uncle Richard, my cool uncle Richard knew a guy who he used to teach skiing with in steamboat, Colorado. Perfect. He got me, he was assistant manager at an islands in Manhattan beach. So like I went to islands burgers the other night for the first time ever. Oh yeah. Loved it. Yeah. I I haven't eaten there in years since I got fired, but, (laughs) uh, yeah, he hooked me up my third day in LA. I was working at islands in Manhattan beach. When Uh, I, uh, I worked there all the time. When I won the funny comedian Philly thing, I um, won a trip to London. So Wow. Yeah, it was awesome. So it was for two people. So I brought my little brother because he would like drive up to New York with me. He's always been there for me. So that was my thank you. That's the dentist. Yeah. Great and guy. I remember my first day in the pizza shop was that I worked in the pizza shop that went to the airport with no time to shower. That's how poor I was. Nice. Worked in the pizza shop, went straight to the airport to fly back to Philly so we could go to London together. That's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty great. Um, and so then how long after you were, well, one, how long did it take you to become a regular here? I got, I started to do the open mic consistently in January, 2001. Okay. January, 2001. I, that was meant for the first time in my life, I had three minutes of stage time, which is nothing, but to go from zero stage time to three minutes, it's, it's a win. Yeah. Um, and that essentially that three minutes on stage was the reason why I left my family and friends so that I knew I needed to get on stage and develop. Right. Um, that was January, 2001, March of 2001. I started to manage the club, which meant sometimes I didn't get to go up on Sundays. Right. Cause I had a fall on the sword. I didn't think it was fair to the door guys. Um, and so I didn't get on. So stage. you were, you were a manager at the comedy store. I worked every job here. Wow. I, um, the worst job for me was the parking lot. Every, everybody the worst job gigs. for everyone. Yeah. I worked the parking lot like three times. Um, bartended phones, door, Mitzi's assistant, oh. assistant talent coordinator. What else is there? manager that's pretty much oh and then i was office office assistant for paulie right and at the time that's when paulie and peter started to take over the operations right so that was pretty much at a comedy store job i everything like so and i worked here for like four years never got passed um and then that lady shelly wanted this place to go corporate yeah i I was an employee during that yeah and that's when i quit she wanted me to sign an employee handbook and I'm like, 
here's the thing. You don't pay me enough money to break my balls. Yeah. I'm like, you're like Randall Floyd from Days to Confused. You're like, I might work here, but I'll never sign this. Threw it in her face. Yeah, it was like, it was like, I, at that point, I was so broken. Yeah. That like, there were times where I, I was just so sad because I no longer had like delusions of being rich and famous, but I was just like, just please recognize my talent to the point where I can develop. Right. And there were so many bad comics getting on stage. And it hurt me so bad that I wasn't getting on stage. Yeah. So, um, and, and there was a time right before Mitzi stopped trying to make the lineups where the lineups were horrible and she would do them in alphabetical order. Yeah. I was going to one of the things that was frustrating was like, there was no one whose last name was below G Yeah. because she would, they just started a, and she would pick 15, 10, 15 comics. I was in the, room for some of those things yeah because like i would help duncan right and then i i will say i i loved that at the time it was a very challenging year where i would wake up and uh take the bus to the comedy store or walk they used to have this thing called the dash then which was like a, a less it was a smaller bus was more of a shuttle and only cost a quarter okay so you were short bus into the comedy short store bus into the comedy store Picking up the van. All right. Getting Mitzi out of bed, cooking her breakfast. Wow. Hang out all day. Leave Mitzi and either go to the pizza place to work at night or to the work the door at the comedy store. $25 a night back then. 20, it was, yeah, the worst was when I managed, I'd get in at one or two in the afternoon and work till like two in the morning for $75. Yeah. No benefits, no overtime. And then I didn't have a car. So if I took a cab home, it would cost me 40 bucks. So I would work essentially 12, 15 hours for $25, 30 bucks. And what the, the salt in my wounds was, I don't want this to sound like I'm complaining. I'm grateful for all these experiences. But everybody was like, look, dude, you can't be a manager. You have to switch down to door guy because Mitzi always fires managers. If you get fired, you're not going to develop as you're a comedian. Here, yeah. So as soon as I went from the manager thing down the downshifted the door guy, they started to pay the managers hourly and gave them health insurance. Wow. That's the worst. And I was like, that's, that's terrible. Yeah. I just got handed. Yeah. It happened to me all the time. Yeah. And I, when I was the office assistant, I was working for Mitzi from like 10 in the morning to 10 at night at her house. Generally, the only, if I didn't, Yeah. If she knew I didn't have a pizza shift job, she'd be like, oh, you can be late for the store. So I was like, I love, now I look back and love all the conversations we had. Right. Like it's the, I got to interact with a legend. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I was just telling this to somebody today. I was talking to Favorman today. And for years I thought Mitzi hated me. And I remember it was Harris and he was like, if, if she, if that woman hated you, you wouldn't be here. Yeah. And I couldn't see it at it as a 28 year old kid. I couldn't see that. Right. But now I go, Oh yeah. yeah. She must've thought it was hilarious how she broke my balls. She was, oh yeah. And you know what it was? We had a good heart to heart and I never really told anybody this, but she was toughening, toughening me up. Yeah. She was like, you're, she was like, babe, that's one of her things. She was like this city would have eaten you up if it wasn't for me. It was tough love. Yeah. She was the first person to give me tough love. Cause my family's just so supportive and right. Italian and loud and loving She's just like, no, I'm going to show you how shitty this world is. So the world doesn't seem as shitty in the end. Maybe so. Yeah. I think what it was, she was like, this kid could make it and they'll just rip him apart and he'll take advantage of him. Yeah. And I'll wind yeah. up like with drug and alcohol addictions if I don't take care of him right. and toughen him up. Cause that easily could have happened to me. I got a phone call from Duncan when I was a door guy, and he's like, hey, man, I got a great opportunity for you. Mitzi is really interested in having you be your assistant. It's awesome. Jim Carrey used to do it. No, absolutely not. No, I mean, a lot of people go, there's no way that I'm doing that. He's like, Are you sure? I go, absolutely not. There's no way. At the time, she was running around uh, Mikey Romano. I don't know if you remember yes. him. Um, and he would just show up to do his spots and be like, today was horrible and i was like oh man why he's like she'd tell me to do something and i'd do it and then she'd tell me what a moron i was for doing it and i was just like oh so all i knew was like i don't want to do it and then i saw duncan a couple days later and he's like 
Sorry, man. I, I had to try. You know, I figured you're the newest one. So I'm just like, yeah, no, I've heard bad things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean I, to ask. Yeah, I remember all of it. I remember Ooh. the phone calls of her rejecting everybody. Yeah. Because she went through, there was a kid named Marcus. Yeah, I remember Marcus. Um, who was a great guy. And Marcus lasted years. And then it, nobody lasted more than a week. Yeah, that was the thing. And then it was down to, and then I was like, I do not, everybody's like, you don't want the, Ari's like, you don't want that job. Yeah. You're choke, fire, it'll be your. Yeah. So everybody's like, they don't want it, they don't want it. And then uh, Duncan's rattling off names. And then he was like, oh, how about Steve Simone? And it's just quite, because it was this, it was like Don Richardson, no. Dave Mashevitz, no. Ari, no. You know, like <laughs> yeah. going through what about Steve Simone? And then there's just silence and, and Duncan looks at me and I'm like, oh, shit. okay, send him over. Dang. So, I mean, that's hand selected. That's a, yeah. That's a and it made day. me feel like now I look back and I can't believe, I don't know. I'll fucking cry if I think about it, <laughs> but it was so good. Yeah. It was, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, but that was 2003 and I still didn't get passed right until 2008. Wow. So I, I, my first open mic was September of 2000. I only okay. did like three or four of them. Yeah. Um, and then I worked every job until about January of 2005. I got fired from being her assistant in the famous desert fiasco with me run as easy and Ari opening for Polly. Yeah. And, and her she feeling, knew, like right. I used to leave the assistant job to open up for Polly on the road. Right. So she, she knew Polly brought me to the club. Sure. Cause I remember the first time I had a sit down with her when I was the manager, she was like, Oh, you're Paulie's guy. No, this is what it was. <laughs> I was so in awe of her presence. Cause I'd seen her a couple of times. It, we all were she, in her terrifying, house. Terrifying to be around. Yeah. And she goes like this. She's just staring at me. She goes, My son speaks very highly of you. And I'm just like, <laughs> she goes, you know, my son. And I'm like, Paulie, Paulie Shore. Yeah, that's my son. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, you're going to do great, doll. Like rolling her eyes. Yeah, like, and then we, I pick her up, drive her to the comedy store as the new manager. Okay. And she walks me through the club and shows me exactly how to set up the club. From the music, the lights on every light, the exact dim of every light the reason behind everything. And then we sat in the center booth. She had promoted a show at the time called Arabian nights. I remember. Maz Jabrani, Ahmed Ahmed, Aaron Cater, Vince. It's not sold out. Vince Vaughn pops up on stage. This is pre wedding crashers. Vince Vaughn pre old school. Was it swingers? Era? Yeah, it was after swingers. Okay. It was definitely after swingers was the nineties. It's like 2001, 2002. Oh, right, right. Okay. So I'm just saying he had some, Oh, fame. he was very famous. Yeah, okay. I was shocked. I was a huge fan. Right. Still, I'm a huge fan. And I was just like, what am I, what world have I walked into? Right. And then I, that was managing. And then I guess it was a year after that. No, two years. If that was 2001, I was her assistant two years after that. Okay. Or a year after that until 2003, I was her assistant for a year. And then quit in January of 2005 because I'm like, I'm not signing the employee handbook. This place sucks. I'm funnier than half the paid regulars here. I want to get on stage. She's not passing me. You know what? Screw this. Yeah. And then I went to go work graveyard shift at a gym from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. And then just tried to hustle as much road work as possible. Right. Yeah. The, the Shelly era was, was mind bendingly terrible. I mean, it was, it was tough working. Cause I, I would, I worked a lot, a lot and I worked the back door a lot and I'd have to be here at like seven and I'd stay until two or two thirty, depending on how late Eddie Griffin went on, whatever the deal was back then. That's who oh, was yeah. always he's doing like four hour sets. Oh and, yeah. That was terrible. Um, and I'd get $25 a night and then I'd have to go home and I had to work at islands during the day to actually make money to live or whatever. And, um, it was just, it was a brutal time, but it was like, you know, it's, we've talked about it before. It's a, a insane asylum run by the insane people. Yeah. There's no doctors, just crazy people 
in charge of crazy people. Especially then. Yeah. And so it was like, uh, I, I liked that aspect of it. This was the first place I ever went to in my whole life where I felt like the normal person. Okay. I remember having, it's funny you mentioned that. I remember having a talk with my mom, like maybe a year before I moved out here, about what my game plan was and why I felt I needed to do this on that stuff. And I remember being like really honest because I was always kind of like introspective guy. I was always like, and I always had a ton of friends. Right. Always. I've been blessed that way. Always, always, always. And I love people. And I always had like the best friends, but I never really felt can, I never really felt anybody got me. Still an outsider. Correct. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the same boat. Until I got here. Yeah. And then- I was, that's why I said, this is the Island of Misfit Toys. It's all these people that don't really quite fit in anywhere else. Then we come here and we're like, oh, this is oh, where I belong. Yeah. Like my, I, my black soul has a place in this world. I remember the first time walking into this building and I went, this just feels right. And Juan Carlos, I came in the, um, I was training on the phones. Okay. Or maybe I came in, you know what? I filled out a job application here. Three months before I got hired. I just didn't get hired. Right. It wasn't until Paulie called it in. But I remember Juan Carlos, I don't know if it was the day I filled out my application or the day Freddie was training me on the phones. But Juan Carlos looks at me and he was like, hey, is that going? And he was like, do I know? He goes, it seems like I know you, but I don't know you. This Juan Carlos, he was like, you seem like family. And I'm like, yeah, I think I belong here. That's rad. Yeah. And I used to like have that legitimate fear when I was in the basement that I'd find the old Shining, shining style. I'm like, wait, there yeah. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Cause that, that's how connected I felt to uh this comedy store family. Yeah. From day one. I always even felt- though I was rejected. Yeah. For years. Rejected for years. Yeah, I, I somehow slipped through the cracks on that. I Mitzi passed me on my one year anniversary of living in LA. And I was Was she aware of that? No. And I was I was I wasn't even supposed to go up. But everyone was hiding because everyone was terrified. Yes. And so they said, uh, yeah, you got to go up. And I, at that point, I was showcasing to keep my job. Yeah. Back then, if she didn't like you, she'd fire you. Yeah, fire her off the door. And about three weeks before that, there was this guy named Drew that worked here. He got hired the same day as me and Hatchell. And he went up in front of Mitzi and he bombed. And he, his face was never seen in these parts again. I don't see him anymore. And I was just like, oh, my God. It's terrible. So there was a showcase list. Uh, there was a night she passed Ari Shafir. I remember that. So she had made the plan. They called Ari. Said, yeah, Mitzi's passing you tonight. You have to come showcase. Don't fuck it up. And uh, Ari came, did well. She passed him. Kirk Fox went up. He was on the showcase list. She passed him. And then like three or four other people went up. Didn't like 2003, him that much. 2003, 2004? This is 2003, yeah. Okay, I remember him. And then... Uh, and then Skippy Simon was hosting and he came back and he was like, Hey, have you seen so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so? And I said, yeah, they're here somewhere. And he went, walked around the building, whatever, looked for him. And he's like, I don't know where they're hiding. You're, you're next. And I'm like, what? And he was like, yeah, you're up like a minute. Just like full panic. Then like, what? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to go up yeah, for this. Is, no, man. I'm, I'm going to lose my job. That's it's nothing like that. Yeah. Man. And I, I was terrified. And I'm like, well, I, the only thing I had planned, because I didn't know Mitzi was going to show up that night, was I was going to work on my new killer character that I had been coming up with based on an actual guy, which was uh, uh, a cable, the cable guy, based on the guy who came and put the cable in mine and my roommate at the time's apartment. And uh, I don't know if this is post-Larry the Cable Guy or pre-Larry the Cable Guy, now that I think about it, but... Mine was just like this. It was this dumb redneck cable guy in Manhattan Beach. That's hysterical. And he came and my roommate had a chinchilla. Mm-hmm. And the dude just was going off. I was dying. He, he was like, what is that? What kind, of, what kind of rat is that? I'm like, oh, it's a chinchilla. Oh, what? That's a South American mouse, essentially, or something. What the hell is that? Uh, he bathes in volcanic dust. And then the dude just started ripping into things he knows about wild animals. Man, you go down to Mexico, you can buy anything, man. I had a buddy who was down there, man. He bought a great white shark, man. I was like, so I was just like, this dude is the best. And so that was my plan was I was going to try and work out this new character. And my, I still wanted to be on SNL at the time. Yeah. Um, 
So I had it all planned. And I'm like, well, I can't do that. I haven't ever done it on stage. You know, should I just go back and do some of my old impressions or whatever? And, uh, I was just like, fuck it. Just yeah. do what I had planned. That's what I had planned. You know, back then when you're starting, you plan out like every, every breath, every pause. Yes. Like I, I had written down word for word, every single thing oh, I was going to say. Funny story. Um, and I went up and I, I still do the same exact thing I did then. But from the first time I ever got on stage was I walk on stage and I just act like the crowd is just loving me. Mm-hmm. Like I take my kudos despite the fact the crowd's just like, who the fuck is this guy? Mm-hmm. Um, and I heard Mitzi laughing while I'm just fakely waving at nobody. And yeah, yeah. it's just total cheese dick. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm like, oh my God, she's laughing. And then I did my three minutes, did okay, not yeah. good, not terrible, just okay. Never heard Mitzi laugh again, got off stage and tried to walk by her as fast as possible. And she's like, come here. And I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Horrified. And I walked over and she, it was very, very nice and complimentary. And I was just like, okay, thanks. The last thing she said to me was something like, you need to perform more to get better. I'm like, okay. And I walked out just like, I think I'm not fired. And then Duncan, you're past, man. Oh, mate. That's when everybody used to call you the Shermanator. Yep. Dice, Dice started it. I guess Eleanor's brother started it. And then Dice did it. And then... <laughs> Dice eventually saw who the Shermanator was. He watched American Pie with Max. Looks nothing like you. Why, why do you have? Why? Why did you have me call you that? I'm like I didn't ask I didn't you to call you that. I, I I'm an asshole because you made me call you the Shermanator. I'm like, no, I didn't. It's not. Um, but yeah, that was my terrifying got past story. And then like you were like, yeah, I never thought you were funny. Not the way I remember it. The way I remember it was just everyone being like. She passed this fucking prick. This dude's got like uh, no, four minutes of shitty Will Ferrell impressions. Yeah. But you were funny. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions in comedy. There are some great comedians that aren't funny. Yeah. They're great at being a comedian. Like yeah, it's a you can learn to be a comedian. Yeah. When I talk to people about that, I always say, I would say 15% of comedians are funny, really funny people. Yeah, I think so too. And that's inaccurate. Out of the greatest comedians of all time, 100% of them Correct. are funny people. The, the people that are naturally talented, that put the work in and don't give up. I do want to say that because I, I don't know who's listening to this, but whatever whatever you want to do, this one of the secrets I've learned is you just never give up. Yeah. Never, true. ever, ever It can't even be up. an option. It's not an option. Burn that fucking bridge. Yeah. Don't give up. Right. You can't give up because there were so many times I should have given up, but I knew I was, I always believed I was funny. And Steve and I went on the road with Polly together for a while and we had to share hotel rooms, which was awesome. Yeah. It was sleep. It was like, Oh, this is great. It was, so it was like fun. hanging out in high school again or something. It was the best. But one of the things we used to always talk about was, it was like, we wish there was something else we could do in the world because it would be a lot easier, a lot easier, but there's no, there is nothing else for us. Like this yep. is what we're going to do with our life. And we still, like, I remember right before Christmas, we did some podcast together and you picked me up and we drove and did it. And then the way back was just like, this sucks. What are we doing? <laughs> I'm just like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know what we're doing. And, but yeah. then it's like, there's nothing else for us yeah, to do. You got to keep, you just got to keep doing it. That's it. Keep if if forward. you know, this is what you're supposed to do. Do That's it. it. Yeah. Yeah, if you know, like, and that's what I totally believe. Comedy's a calling. Yeah. If if and if I feel a moral obligation to do it, and that that's what got me through it. Like I think the dark years were so dark for me because I was so focused on myself and my struggles and why isn't this happening to me and why is this so difficult? Why isn't comedy? And then I went, oh wait, I made that little switch where I went to stage isn't a place to get; it's a place to give. So I'm like, every time I go out on stage and I just try to give. I'm like, I've already succeeded. Right. And I'm like, somehow I'll be able to pay my bills. I'm like, don't worry about that. Just focus on going out there and trying to make people feel a little bit better about life. And then I started to feel better about life. As soon as I started to feel like I was contributing more. And then it just kept on momentum, positive momentum. And then by the time I got past here, I didn't even care. Right. That's how I, I remember the first time Mitzi saw me on stage. I remember I, she walked into the room when I was on stage. And I was killing because I was like, I was a, a door guy. And I was like, I'm making sure I get up on stage when she's not 
Yeah, yeah. I'm like, give me one of those spots before she gets here. Right. And it was Sunday nights and she used to watch Sex in the City. And I was like, oh, Sex in the City is still on. She's not. I'm gold. And I'm murdering. And then I'm like, you see, they used to keep the lights on. Yeah. And I'm like, oh. And I look back and Mitzi's laughing. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. And I'm like, this is it. Guess who just got passed? This will be a Hollywood story. Yep. And it was probably like seven years after that I got passed. Right. Um, and then there were a couple times where I was like, I'm going to fucking showcase and I'm going to get what's mine. This is back when I was so ego driven. Sure. And uh, no, the world isn't going to give me anything because I'm going to take it. Well, this is the truth. This really did happen. I think this might have been a night when Freddie Soto was hosting. Okay. And maybe there was, I remember bombing horrifically once where it was Freddie, one of the best comics, best human beings of great all time. Dude, yeah. And a great mentor to me. Um, more of a friend than a mentor. Yeah. Like just that guy to listen when you needed it. Sure. Um, Freddie Soto, he uh, has passed on, but. You can look up his stuff on YouTube and it's out there. He's oh, a he truly been. hysterical comedian. Yeah. He was destined for great things. And yeah, for sure. But yeah. Would have been the biggest comedian in the world right now. Yeah. Um, he, he did give good advice though. He was, he was one of the guys that got me doing what I do on stage as opposed to trying to tell shitty last comic standing jokes. Like, like I'm from Kansas, which means love, yeah, 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 yeah. And he was just like, you're a lot funnier off stage. Don't ever tell those jokes again. Yeah, that's like, what? He was like, no, I don't want you to ever tell any of those jokes ever again on stage. Yeah. You're funnier than that. Yeah, he would say, like, he, oh, okay. He would watch me. He was like, great, great. You know, you're doing it, bro. You're doing, I'm like, what do I do? He's like, keep doing it. That's what you do. Yeah. But one time I remember bombing so horrifically, he was like, what the fuck was that? That was terrible. Because <laughs> I wanted it too bad. Yeah. I think there's like, uh, you see it in, in uh, sports a lot. When people put too much pressure on themselves, they're tight and they can't do it. Yep. I wasn't having fun on stage. Like when I would showcase for Mitzi, I felt like it was a test. Like I didn't feel, I wasn't loose. I wasn't in the moment. I wasn't in a place of giving. And I think that's all, just have fun, man. Yeah, I benefited from having 30 seconds to prepare and not, I, I had no, I wasn't thinking about it, it. Couldn't get in your head. There was no way I was going up. I was told. So I was just like, okay, well, I was doing my job. And then it was like, everyone else is gone. You're up now. Right. So just so the listeners get Mitzi used to come in and sit in her seat, the back of the room, she would have a list of people's names on it. Right. If she liked you, she would circle your name. She didn't like you. She would scratch your name off. Right. Now, there were times where I was driving her home after showcasing for her. Brutal. And I saw my name circled. There were a couple times. I don't, I have to ask if Eleanor knows what this means. There were a couple times my name was circled and there was a star or stars next to it. I'm like, that's got to be good. Yeah. I've been in the second grade. Stars are always good. Yeah. If it was a gold Nothing. star, golden, but. And she would love it. I'd be like, so, uh, like now I'm <laughs> laughing in hindsight. What a moron I was. Like I had to be very entertaining to her. Yeah. Because she would make me sit next to her like a lap dog and watch Fox News with her. <laughs> yeah. No, go get me some almonds. Okie doke, Mitz. <laughs> right and then bring them back. And I remember driving her home, I'd be like, so showcases tonight. What See do you it? think? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anybody uh, make an impression? <laughs> you are the dumbest person. Yeah. I'm letting a retard drive me home. <laughs> Gas is on the right, hon. Um, <laughs> but I remember this one time, because, like, you remember the confidence you would have as a young comic if you had, like, three or four good sets? Sure. And I remember I didn't have a car at the time, and I'm walking from, like, approximately, like, Hollywood and Highland. Right. Down to the comedy store. It's probably two miles, maybe two and a half miles. And the whole time, and I know this is a showcase night. I know she's coming in. And I'm just psyching myself up like I'm a boxer. I'm like, tonight's the night. This right. is when it happens. Do or die. And I show up and it's one of those Sunday nights where there's like two audience members. Yep. And I'm like, oh, all right, man. I guess tonight's not the night. They're like, yeah, she's probably not even going to come in. She's watching Sex in the City. And a phone rings. No, nope, Mitzi wants a ride. She's coming in. This is before I was her assistant. I'm like, she's coming in? She's not going to showcase us in front of two people, is she? No, she's going to show... And I'm like, no, that's bullshit. She's not. She knew. She doesn't. There, there could have been no one there. She doesn't care. Doesn't care. Yeah. 
And I remember at the time, this is one of my earlier showcases, I would come out like an 80s heavy metal singer, like real high energy and like goofing on that stuff. Like, what's up? Let me see your cigarette yep. lighters. And I do remember this because I've said this as a joke now, but this was all painfully real. <laughs> She's in the back of the room. Everybody's, nobody's having a good set. And I'm in the back of the room. And I was like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then I gave myself that, the worst advice ever. I was just like, do what you do. And to an empty room, I come out so high energy, like, what's up? Let me see your cigarette lighters. I legitimately heard her crossing my name off the list <laughs> from the back of the room. It's here. Heart torn out of your body. Torn out of my body. Oh, it's the worst. The so many awful, awful nights here. <laughs> so many of the like I can't, I don't want to get into that. I I couldn't live through it again, man. Yeah. If somebody said, Hey, if you start all over again from the beginning, but at the 15 year mark, you'll be the biggest star in Hollywood. I'd be like, nah, keep it. I'll just, if, just and if that's stay the on time my path. machine, yeah, yeah, I'm like, I'll just stay in Philly. <laughs> that's how tough it was. But I'm very grateful now. Right. I would. You made it through. So I made it through, but I'm just saying, I don't think I could do it again. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Very, very grateful. I wouldn't change any, I wouldn't change anything. Right. Nothing. I wouldn't take away any of the pain. I wouldn't make it any easier. Right. Because I've made the best friends. I have friends that I don't deserve. I have the best friends in the world. Um, I, I don't believe that statement to be true. Oh, uh, dude. You you'd certainly provide friendship that I would say the opposite. Other people probably don't no, deserve. But no. I'm so blessed for the friends I have, the experiences. And more than anything, like I, I've. I don't know if I, I think I had to go through the darkness, the, the dark night of the soul, so to speak, to have this sense of gratitude and. Yeah. Like if Darth Vader would have just lived, he would have eventually been very thankful for all the journeys he had. Yeah. But, uh, well, uh, we got to wrap this one up. I, I want to bring you back on cause yeah, I feel like we barely, any specific yeah, stories. We, we, we barely tapped into, uh, the origins and the, and the dawning of Steve Simone at the comedy store. But, um, what, uh, what you have an album? Yeah. It's called remember this. Remember this. They can get it on iTunes. Yeah. It's on iTunes. Remember this on iTunes. I do my own podcast called good times. One of the all time favorite episodes is when you were on it. Love to have you come back on. Great episode. And, uh, thank you so much for, uh, spell your name for people. So they know how to look you up. Steve. Uh, my website's awesome. Steve.com. Awesome. Steve.com. Perfect. So that's um, and, and yeah. that's not because I think I'm awesome. It's ironic. somebody stole my name from me and tried to sell it back to me. And then in my joke, I imitate my little brother saying the word awesome. And then after shows, people would come up and go, awesome. Nice. I, I, I don't think anyone was sitting there like, you know what? I was going to listen to this guy until I found oh, out he God. thinks he's awesome. Yeah. So I think you're good to go. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, I'm Rick Ingram. My guest tonight, Steve Simone. I'm definitely going to bring him back because we have just between us. There are so many stories to tell that yeah, we didn't even get into. But um, yeah, thanks for listening, guys. And uh, yeah, check out other episodes. Last one we did with Earl Skakel. And we have a bunch of older ones. Um, check out the Argus Hamilton one. It's, it's pretty Argus. entertaining. It tells good John Belushi at the Comedy Store stories and stuff. So um, thanks for listening, guys. Have a good one. Thanks.